to the Voices of Women Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tatiana Reznik, a practicing physician and a certified life coach. You will hear about inspirational journeys and practical tips from amazing women physicians, as well as effective coaching tools and steps to joyful success. Welcome, everyone. I'm so grateful and happy to have today our special guest, Dr. Nerissa Kecher. She is a pharma industry MD coach, and uh, she will be with us today on this episode. Welcome, Dr. Kecher. Thank you so much for coming here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. So by background, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist and currently, as you said, work in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry as the chief medical officer of a biotech company. Oh, it's wonderful. It is wonderful. Is it something what you always wanted to do? Oh, how did you start? Please tell us about your journey. Yeah. So actually, it's not something that I was originally planning for. I was on a clinical research track in my fellowship. I was able to get a master's in clinical research, had done a clinical research project. And so my plan was to be in academics and have a clinical development career. I was moving because of family reasons and the role in a children's hospital where I was moving that I thought was secure actually was cut with budget cuts. And so I was left needing to be in a certain city and they offered me an an academic job, but it was more to see patients 80% of the time. So I really reevaluated that and looked at it to determine if it's really what I wanted to do. And, And it really wasn't. So I used my network and, you know, this is one of the key things in getting a role in pharma. I really let everyone know that I was looking for a role. And one of the sales representatives from a company that worked with growth hormone, who I knew, asked me to give her my resume and she shared it with her company. And that's how I got my first role as a director of medical affairs. So network is really key. and, And I'll stress that throughout our conversation, I suspect. Oh, it's awesome. Was it difficult to transition to a different area? Yeah. What helped you? Sure. So I don't remember it being difficult. I remember it being incredibly fun and intellectually interesting and stimulating. Certainly it was like starting again. You know, if you think about starting maybe your internship where you feel like you're brand new and you don't know a lot, I felt that way because I was exposed to people with marketing degrees and regulatory background, things that I really hadn't experienced. But it was so educational and interesting that every day I was learning lots of new things. And I just soaked it all in and and enjoyed not knowing and being able to learn. Mm. And where did you go after that? position. Please continue your journey. 
Yeah. So I made this transition 16 years ago. So I've worked in the Mm. pharma industry for 16 years and I have held roles in both medical affairs. That's where I started as well as in clinical development. And I strategically have looked at those roles as I've transitioned between different companies with the goal of being a chief medical officer. And the chief medical officer has responsibility for both clinical development and medical affairs typically. So by really having both of those skill sets, I feel like it's made me a very, you know, flexible chief medical officer. And and I really am able to understand those two functions very well. Oh, it's yeah. great. You have experience in both, so you can actually do It's It's wonderful. Uh, can you tell us a little more what exactly medical affairs and clinical development, sure. what yeah, exactly it is? Really common question. So in, ph- in the pharmaceutical industry, the roles for physicians that I typically talk to people about as, as roles that they might enter with a, with a physician background, medical affairs, clinical development, and pharmacovigilance, also called drug or patient safety. Medical affairs, I think of it as the most external or outward-facing role for physicians. And the role there is to dialogue with other physicians and healthcare providers to gain insights and information on what is needed for patients, what drugs are working, how can we improve them, what is it that physicians need to help take care of their patients better. So we're having those conversations, we're sharing and educating information externally with other physicians. That's medical affairs. Uh Clinical development is much more maybe self-explanatory. So the clinical development physicians are involved in the clinical trials. So they're writing clinical trial protocols and contributing their medical expertise to those, writing lots of other And when I say writing, they're not actually putting pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard. We have writers who help, but they're contributing their intellectual knowledge to Uh the protocols and other regulatory documents. They also are involved in talking with physicians externally, but those conversations are going to be much more focused on clinical trials and clinical development. And then finally, the drug safety or pharmacovigilance piece, those physicians are focused 100% on the safety of the drugs that we're developing or that are marketed. And so they're looking for safety signals, really applying their medical knowledge to determine if a safety signal is related to the drug or perhaps related to the underlying disease. I see. It's really interesting. Wow, such three different areas. For physicians who would like to start, what exactly would be the first step? How and how can they be prepared? Do they need any additional training or what helps? Right, right. Great question. So so first I really like to stress to people that as physicians, we already have incredible certification right? We've been to more schooling than most people. And that MD or DO behind your name is enough certification. You don't need to go get other certifications. Now, at the same time, if you want to get into clinical development, some research experience is very helpful. 
But again, because as physicians, we typically are perfectionists. People think when I say you need research experience that I'm talking about, you know, running a drug company sponsored double blind placebo controlled trial. And that's not necessarily the case. The research experience can be understanding the process, maybe doing retrospective case reviews, maybe publishing a case report, but going through that process of looking at what is the process and the protocol of doing clinical research. So clinical development, I do recommend that people try to get research experience in some way, shape, or form, but it's still not to say that you necessarily have to have extensive research experience. You just need to be able to understand the process. I see. I see. How about medical affairs? So medical affairs and pharmacovigilance, both of those are, I would say, more reliant on your medical knowledge than on clinical research experience. So if I have a physician client who has not touched any clinical research, you know, maybe they've never published anything, they've not participated in any type of research, I would probably point them more towards medical affairs and or pharmacovigilance because there it's really more about applying your medical knowledge So again, no additional certifications. It's really just relying on your medical knowledge. I see. It's great. Can someone start with, for example, with medical affairs and eventually transition to clinical development without having previous research experience? So that's actually a really interesting way to consider getting in. If you want to do more clinical development, you think that's something you're interested in. Once you have your foot in the door and you have industry experience, one, it's going to open up possibilities within the company you work for because we're always looking to mentor and develop good employees. So if you're an employee in medical affairs and you're talking to your boss, other people at the company about where you want your career to go, it's going to open up possibilities for you to learn those skills on the job. So it's a, it's a great opportunity and there's lots of development within companies. I see. Thank you. And is it something that physician can do on a part-time basis or is it always full-time? Like if someone still wants to continue some clinical work, Is it something which is possible to combine? Yeah. So generally speaking, there's not a lot of part-time opportunity. Now, that's not to say, though, that I don't know lots of physicians who have some kind of clinical touch point. So there are physicians that work in industry as a full-time job and still keep, for example, a half-day clinic. There are also physicians, the, the model where I trained, Eli Lilly was one of the companies near where I trained, and the Eli Lilly endocrinologists would be the proctors or mentors for our fellows clinic. And so that's how they kept their mm-hmm. clinical experience up. So there are ways to do it that allow for you to still work full-time. The part-time opportunities are few and far between and something that might be more on a contractor basis. I see. I see. And how to find physician pharma jobs? 
What is the best places to look at? So my go-to is LinkedIn. The the pharmaceutical industry, we sort of, from a social media perspective, LinkedIn is where we really live. And in my mind, LinkedIn provides uh, a one-stop shop. So you can do networking on LinkedIn, but you can also do job searching on LinkedIn. So that's really where I suggest people spend their time. The other, of course, would be if you identify specific companies of interest, their websites would be another place where you're going to find their job posts. And then another, which probably many of your listeners are aware of, there are Facebook groups of physicians that work in pharma and people who are looking for roles. And so sometimes you will find information there as well. I see. As there many remote opportunities when people can work from home or is it mostly in person? Yeah, this is really interesting. And COVID has changed this a lot, I think, in our favor. So it used to be before COVID, I went to the office on average four days a week. Now I go to the office one to two days a week. We are definitely hiring more remote people. However, I will say that policy is company by company. So I'm aware of companies who have said people have to come back. And then there are companies who are being much more flexible. And it's really opened up opportunities for physicians who don't live in some of the biotech pharma hubs, like Boston, like the New York, New Jersey corridor, like uh, Northern California. So it's really an opportunity now. I see. So can people even leave not just out of town, but even out of state? Yes. Oh, oh, it's uh-huh. So currently, actually, one of my physicians lives in a completely different state and he comes into the office on average about once every two to three months. So, yes, it definitely is an option. I think important, though, to recognize that it's it is company by company specific. I see. Oh, it's interesting. It's great. And what does a lifestyle looks like usually? Yeah. So if I compare and contrast to a practicing physician, I think some of the key differences are we are not on call. So we have much more of a set schedule, you know, a a typical workday. And whether that's eight to five-ish or eight to six-ish, there's not an expectation of nightly or weekend call. It's not to say I don't sometimes work in the evenings or work on weekends, but much more at my discretion and based on my workload. So that's a key differentiator. I think the other, I think, positive is that we get more time off. So a typical vacation policy in a company for an entry-level type role, three to four weeks of vacation. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. On top of... (laughs) <laughs> the typical holidays, right? So I think I counted recently, we we have 21 or two days that, you know, Labor Day, Veterans Day, those sorts of holidays where physicians that are practicing are rotating call coverage, right? And in the industry, your company would be closed. So it's it's a much more specific schedule that you can plan around that doesn't require for a lot of the extra nights and weekends. I see. It's great. And 
for physicians who would like to start in this role, in addition to uh, getting research experience and networking, what else can help to increase their chances of getting into this role? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one would be recognizing that you need a resume as compared to a CV. So many of us in, as physicians have an academic CV. You really do need a resume that sells your skill sets. The other thing would be the mindset. So I, I mentioned earlier that as physicians, we're typically perfectionists and overachievers. Yes. So the mindset that this is a job you can do. So not being, I guess it's really being confident in the fact that you are a highly trained physician and come with many skills that are transferable. So that you have to have that belief right off the bat to really go in and be able to sell your skill set and help them understand what your contributions to the company can be. I see. And you mentioned about difference between CV and resume. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the academic CV, as you know, can be many, many pages long. You know, I've seen some that are 20, 25 pages. Your resume really, my, my guidance for most physicians is to try to get it to three pages. If you look on job websites and such, you'll see people saying you should get your resume to one page. For a physician, that's very, very difficult. So mine is about three pages, and that would be my guidance to people. You really want it to be a chronological picture of what you've done, and you want it to highlight your skill set and highlight with active verbs what you've accomplished in your career. So instead of it being sort of a laundry list or bulleted list like you see in mm -hmm. many CVs, yeah. it's more of a chronologic listing of your accomplishments, not just your positions necessarily. And I again, see. going back to selling your skills and what you've accomplished is a really important part of that. I see, like developed, blah, blah, blah. And oh, yes, open. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yes. I see, I see. And can you tell us a little bit about what challenges you met on your journey and how was you able to overcome them? Yeah, so... One is both really exciting, but also something people should be aware of. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about being exposed to people with different backgrounds and different degrees. So in medicine, we all speak this language of medicine, but in pharma, we are surrounded by people who speak very different languages. So you have to recognize that People may not understand your vocabulary and communication really takes time, energy, practice, and being able to sit back and listen to other people's points of view and understand where they're coming from, what they're trying to achieve. It's a much more cross-functional approach than the medical world that we typically live in in, in practice. I see. Thank you so much. And 
now with all of this experience, you're teaching other physicians how to be able to get into pharma industry. Can you tell us a little bit about your program and how it works? Sure. So the pharma industry MD coach, I started now more than a couple of years ago, really because I was seeing this need from my physician colleagues on Facebook posts and in some of the coaching work I was participating in, people really not understanding the pharma industry and then recognizing that also the pharma industry needs more physicians. We really, we really need physicians in pharma. And so I recognized that I was sort of this bridge in between and could educate my physician colleagues and help them understand this industry that I really enjoy working in. So I coach people through two ways. I do one-on-one coaching with individuals, and I also have an online self-directed course. Um, Also offer a lot of free material through weekly blog posts on my website, you know, free downloads that actually explain medical affairs, clinical development, and pharmacovigilance, and really just try to contribute to, to helping my physician colleagues in a way that allows me to contribute my experience. Yeah, I read some of your posts and some of your articles in your newsletter, and it's really excellent. They describe so clearly and really help physicians understand all of this. It's really, really helpful. And what three best tips would you recommend for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? So the, I guess in no specific order, one would be network. It's not a negative word. People I know don't enjoy it, but really put yourself out there and network with other physicians in pharma and and just let people know what you're thinking about. We want to help you. So network, network, network. The second would be that mindset issue of believing in yourself, believing that as a physician, you are well-trained and you can contribute with the current knowledge and training that you have. And then the third would be really understanding those three roles and thinking about where do you think you could contribute most and tailoring your resume to highlight how you can contribute best to one of those three roles. I see. It's helpful. And about networking, in addition to communicating in Facebook groups and with people who you already know, how do you network on LinkedIn and what else could people do? What other ways to network? Sure. So LinkedIn is great, especially during this period of of COVID we've lived through. But now as we're getting, you know, more face-to-face activities, I recommend people look for in whatever state they're in, their bio organization. So in Massachusetts, where I live, it's called MassBio. The bio organization is a place where you can network with lots of people working in the industry. So there's a networking opportunity as well as an educational opportunity. They typically put on lots of different educational activities. So that's a great resource that you should find in your state. The other would be groups like 
there's a, a group that I'm active in called Women in Bio, and it's not just for women. So it's a great opportunity to, again, learn. We have networking opportunities. So those would be a couple of areas where you can get more face-to-face type networking. Thank you to, for sharing this. And how about LinkedIn? How do you network on LinkedIn? Do you just yeah. message somebody or like how it works? Yeah. Yes. So there, are, I, I typically suggest to my clients to make a list of everyone they know that works in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh-huh. And it's a challenge in a way because most people might immediately say, I don't know anyone. But if you actually sit down and think about it, you probably do know people. So that would be a place I would start is networking with those people that you know or might be acquainted with already in the pharmaceutical industry. You can send a message and just say, you know, who you are, your specialty, and that you're interested in considering a career transition and ask to have a conversation with them. So that would be the first. And then you get into the more sort of cold call, cold message networking, where there are people you don't know. Typically there, I recommend that people start to network with physicians in pharma. So you can easily find that, you know, if you search physicians in pharma, you'll find people. And making that outreach, again, as colleagues, we like to be able to help people. So reaching out and again, just saying, I'm interested in the transition. Can we have a 15-minute call? to discuss what this has been like for you. And then finally, talent acquisition, which is a part of human resources that does the hiring. Those are great people also within companies to network with because they actually can take your resume and start to get you in the system. So those would be three major groups I would start networking with. It is super helpful. Thank you so much. And for physicians who would like to connect you and to learn more, what would be the best way to connect? So I encourage them to go to my website, which is industrymdcoach.com. You can also email me at industrymdcoach at gmail.com. I try to answer all my emails. I also have a Facebook page of the same name and post content there as well. So those would be three major ways to get in touch with me. Thank you so much. It was so helpful. And I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about your journey. And thank you so much for all of those super helpful tips for our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful, please subscribe, leave a five-star review and share with a friend. Have any topics you'd like covered? Send me an email at joyfulsuccessliving at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram to connect at joyfulsuccessliving. Have an amazing week. See you next time. The Voices of Women Physicians podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not provide any medical, financial, tax, legal, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own well-being, decisions, and results. Dr. Resnik is a practicing physician, but Voices of Women Physicians podcast is not reflective of the opinion of her employer. 
You should always contact professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.